Hello, everyone, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Hi, everyone. Today, we're speaking with the author, Sayida Copeland, whose writing has been published in Exquisite Pandemic, as well as in the Colonize This anthology, and who is currently writing a novel called Queens. Sayida, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Um, so I wanted to start off by talking about your novel, Queens. Um, it's obviously where you grew up, and it's kind of like the geographical backdrop and almost character in itself in, in your novel. Um, at least that's the way I feel about it. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Queens myself, and I think that we share an interest in in Queens as a location. I'm wondering if you agree. Yes, I do. I um, I was actually raised in St. Albans, Queens, which is a beautiful, beautiful part of Queens. And I know it's pretty huge. Um, which part, again, where are you from? Um, I grew up in Jackson Heights and Elmhurst and Corona. So oh, nice. Very, um, but also just really diverse neighborhoods. I mean, Queens is diversity incarnate in a way but particularly when I was growing up those areas were just I mean my high school had something like 90 different nationalities that were represented so it was it was very cool it was good but it was also very you know um hard scrabble um kind of it was kind of tough there's a toughness to Queens yes people realize yes (laughs) so how does that how does growing up in Queens influence your writing? So when I had came to Queens, I was living in the Bronx. So I was born and raised in Harlem. And then my family transitioned to the Bronx. And then um, about a year or two after living in the Bronx, that's when I was moved to Queens. And I would say it was very different from growing up in Harlem in the Bronx more so because of where I lived. I transitioned from living in apartment buildings. And when I got to Queens, it was just blocks full of houses and I was able to ride my bike and you know leave the door open. So that was like a big shock compared to being in a neighborhood where that wasn't too smart to do. So it actually, I would say it helped my childhood because there was more of a sense of a community. I was able to play with children of my age on the block and they would come over to my home and vice versa. So I would say it was more so of a a relief to be in that type of environment at such a young age. And what do you find Queens to be like an interesting place like uh from a from a literary perspective? Yes, I um when I first began writing Queens I started to look into like different writers that are in Queens and there, there are (laughs) fabulous writers from Queens. And I would say just like my novel that I'm working on, Queens play a big role into how they structure the plot and also, you know, the setting of their stories. And like you had mentioned earlier, Michael, it is so diverse there from Flushing to you know, like you said, Jackson Heights, it's so diverse. So it gives you just a lush of different characters to create and work with, mm-hmm. which I think is beautiful. So I'm curious, when did you realize you wanted to be a writer? 
and did you have any inspirations that sort of stimulated that that itch yeah so it's a funny story I had a teacher um, when I had went to school in Harlem there was a teacher by the name of Miss Claver and I went to PS 180 and Miss Claver she would always encourage us to do a writing assignment right after lunch um, I started writing letters to God and I would write these letters after I would get in trouble so I would just you know go in my room and scribble like I, I'm mad that I can't play with my toys and dear God please make sure I get a Barbie today and I would bring these writings to my teacher and I remember her response was hey um why don't we write to like Santa right don't we write to she was surprised that I was writing letters to God but she still mm -hmm. encouraged me to do so and ever since then I just felt like that was my outlet I was a very quiet child and um, I, I didn't speak much. And when people wanted to know things about me, they knew that I would always keep a book, which later on turned out to be many journals. Uh -huh. um, as a child also, I was taught by a family friend how to write. He would come over and teach us how to write. And since then, I've been in love with writing, Michael. I, I feel like it's my gift. That's all I know to do. Were there any um, writers that you, um, you know, were attracted to that, 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 you know, kind of you wanted to emulate? Yes. As I was growing up in school, I came across Sharon G. Flake's different novels, and I fell in love with her. Um, I was crazy about the, um, <laughs> the Judy Bloom series. Uh-huh. And... As I became older, Toni Morrison is who I adore. Um, I also came across Langston Hughes, his prose work versus his poetry, huh. which I highly recommend people to look into. And a lot of people, they, they know him for his poetry, but his prose work is amazing, totally amazing. And I remember I was telling you, like, we both are fans of James Baldwin. Yes. So they are like my heroes in the writing world. That's uh, that's really interesting, um, and so, you know, uh, you're 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 young and you're not yet very well established in the writing world, mm -hmm. um, and I'm just wondering. I mean, all of us. I mean, one of the things about this podcast that um, I think makes it different from other podcasts is that we we talk about money and we talk about yes. how you make how you make a living, mm -hmm. um, and I know that you. You have two jobs and you have two kids, yes. two young children. So I'm just curious how you, um, how you, how do you structure your day, your time, um, so that you can find time to write? Yeah. So I have two children, two sons, and one is nine, and one is going to be two this year. And the nine-year-old, he's very used to mommy writing, and mommy needs quiet time, and he's perfect with that. But the two-year-old, he's a little like, what? No, I don't understand. So I usually wait until he's asleep. And then I would go ahead and crank out what I need to crank out for the day. I usually tell myself, like, okay, today at 8 p.m. when he's asleep, we're going to do two chapters. Mm -hmm. Or I'll tell myself, okay, we're going to read a chapter or two from a book that I'm reading for that month. Um, 
sometimes it's not as structured as that sounds. <laughs> There's times where I can't get to it, but I will always tell myself each month, I'm definitely reading a book and every day I have to do some form of writing, whether it's working on my novel or creating a poem, some form of writing to help, you know, keep the brain going. Also, as far as work, I am, yes, working like retail jobs, but when it comes to writing, I would do different gigs. So I may write an essay for a website if they're looking for it, or someone may hire me and say, hey, can you help me work on this story that I, I'm thinking about? So I would edit their stories and that's how I would earn some income as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I always wanted to say, Michael, like I feel like writers, we deserve more pay, <laughs> definitely. Um, and I do think that more opportunities because you have to read and you have to write. Like, I feel like we help the world to keep rolling. I just think that more opportunities should be created for writers, especially like new and young writers who are jumping into the literary world. Just more opportunities for them. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to argue with you about that, for sure. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, I mean, you know, I was talking to um, uh, to a writer named Michael Gottlieb, and he, he's another um, uh, writer who's published by Exquisite Pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. He's got a beautiful um, poem in, in there called Voices. Um, and he wrote an essay years ago, actually, about sort of the different choices that writers have made over, um, over the years. Um, you know, as you go from sort of being in your 20s and um, for, for men in particular, I think it's easy time um, not tied down um, by children mm-hmm. or uh, significant others um, and able to live like graduate students if that's what we want. You know, I'm just kind of like in, uh, in as impoverished a state as we want. But um, then there comes a time when you sort of you come to a crossroads. Like, do I want a family? Do I want to live yes. in comfort? And then there's the choice of, you know, do I, um, do I work a menial job or a blue collar job or a, a kind of nine to five clerical job that doesn't really tax my brain mm-hmm. um, and save that for, you know, my writing? Or um, do I feel like, being stimulated at work is more stimulating overall and I want a more challenging job um, or even, you know, the extreme of, I, you know, I want to have, you know, a successful career mm-hmm. as, a, as a whatever, right? Um, and, uh, you know, so for some people it's teaching, for some people it's journalism, for some people um, it's, you know, being an executive somewhere in a company because I, you know, I want to have what I want to have. And I also, you know, writing will be a part of that and it'll be, you know, um, consigned to, you know, these hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you know, uh, Charles Bukowski chose the, you know, the menial job of being in a, and, and you know, menial, I don't mean to be, um, uh, disrespectful about it. It's just, there's no thinking about working as a postal clerk. Um, and, you know, that, that's what, that, 
that's what he did. Yeah. So that, you know, he wouldn't have a care in the world, a, a work care in the world when he left the, you know, the post office. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the extreme is, you know, one of the great American poets, uh, Wallace Stevens, um, who was an insurance company executive. Oh, so, wow. it's, you know, um, where do you think that you situate yourself in that, um, uh, on, that on that rainbow? I, I feel like, I feel like first there's a beauty in the struggle of being a writer, especially when you're thinking like, one day I hope and I pray and I cross my fingers that what I'm working on is going to skyrocket and receive great attention and, you know, money as well. But I feel like I am more leaning towards the, I want to follow my dreams and I don't want to help another person, you know, foster their dreams in a sense, like working retail jobs um, can be very exhausting yeah. And like you said, taxing, it can be very taxing on the mental. And I've had times when I'm at that cash register and I'm just like, wow, whoever thought of this company, I'm here clocking in and clocking out and I'm helping their dream come true. What about mine? And I think that's when I started telling myself, like, no, I need to dedicate just as much time as I dedicate to a job. Writing should be in shifts. Um, if I really want to see this dream come true, this same person who created this business sat down and they were at the same point where I am. I don't want to work these other jobs. I want to foster my my own dream. And I think I'm more so where I want to be my own boss. I I feel very confident in my writing and I feel that it will capture the attention in the hearts of many people and they would want to see more of me and if you want to see more of me of course you know that I have a living in a lifestyle that I have to maintain so I yeah. think I'm I'm there Michael I'm just like I'm ready to go through the writing struggle <laughs> like now it's funny that you should say that because your your publisher Rick Whitaker um set up a GoFundMe for you um yes. it's uh uh what is it? It's, uh, it, it's uh, Sayida Copeland GoFundMe, or I mean, I, I don't remember if it has a yes. title, but um, I don't know of any other writers who have um, a GoFundMe. Oh. Um, and, but that might be because um, I'm not in the loop on that. But uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, now that I think about it, there probably are. But um, I'm curious: is that something that you found helpful so far? Um, have people been responsive? Um, you know, is that, you know, I guess the question is, I mean, you know, back in the pre, so before the emergence of a middle class that read books and, you know, bought books, um, publishing was, you know, I mean, small bore and, you know, I mean, with exceptions like Alexander Pope, no one really made money as a writer, but they had they had patrons, right? They yeah. some 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 rich person would give them <laughs> enough money to live on, yeah. and they would you know they would write a book. But we don't live in those times anymore. Um, you know there are grants, but I, I don't know of any grant that um, that actually is enough money to live on anyway. Um, so I'm curious. Uh, do you think that a GoFundMe kind of campaign is is, is a viable thing to do? Yes, I think that the GoFundMe is definitely 
a tool that each writer should should use. Um, big thanks to Rick Whitaker, who is my mentor, and he also was my high school teacher. That's how we met. He was teaching writing at Columbia University. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, it's time for you to work on your own novel. And he's like, you need money, girl. So he surprised me. I didn't even know that he created a GoFundMe in my name. And people have been so generous to donate, um, not just for Queens, but also from the anthology of Colonize This. Um, Mm -hmm. Different people would read it and they're just like, how can we support her? And it's been very helpful, I would say. Um, We have raised over $1,000. And Mr. Whitaker is like, this is for you to do whatever you want, whatever tools you need. If you need a day off from work, this is for you. And I definitely, Michael, encourage any writer who is looking for support, especially financially, because let's be honest, it's, it's, it's hard just to write. Like, we really don't make no, any money. But definitely look for grants and create your GoFundMe or any other platform where people can donate to you. And use that money very wisely. <laughs> I definitely yeah. encourage that. And I, I think it's a great tool to establish for yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because a lot of people um, self-publish. A lot of people get published with small presses that, that don't pay. Um, I mean, I, you know, they, they, there, there are publishers that pay you in, in books, right? In, oh, yes. In, in yes. Copies of your book. It's like, thank you, but, you know, <laughs> um, I can't really eat my book. Um, what do you – so 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 literature definitely isn't food, at least no. not for the belly, right? But what is the role for you? of literature and art. I mean, you spoke earlier about, you said something about how we basically help it roll along um, the world. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I feel like when, wherever you look, there, there's a sign, there's instructions. There was a writer that wrote that. Um, when it comes to building the greatest building, somebody had to write, how to structure that building. We are, we're everywhere, like writers are needed, you know, manuals, um, self-help books. So I, I just think that it's, it's really important for us to receive the recognition. Um, I, I feel that some people think writing isn't, isn't as important. And I grew up in a household where, you know, my brothers, they were into music and becoming musicians. And I was the writer. And my parents, they didn't understand. They're kind of like, okay, play the violin, Saida. And I'm like, I like the violin, but hey, I'm working on this story. And they really didn't understand. They're just like, why is she so like, why does she want to write so much? And I'm like, I, I feel like I want to be the next Toni Morrison of my generation. And I've been saying that from a, a very young girl and that's the nickname that Mr. Whitaker gives me um writing has been really dear to me and I'll I'll share a personal story if I may Michael sure so growing up I like I told you a family friend was teaching me how to write and he actually was my grandmother's boyfriend so he would come over to where me and my cousins were and he would sit us down and he would teach us, this is a sentence, this is a period, you know. 
but my cousins they you know we're young we're like five six like nobody cares but me I was just like enthralled I love the pencils I love the way the ink was on the page but um during that time of doing that at the same time he would molest me so it was like I have this love for writing. I'm a young girl. I love writing. I love that this person teaches me how to write, but it comes with a cost. And as I grew up, I kind of was hating writing in a sense because it would remind me of those memories. But then I told myself, I said, no, in order to turn this pain into something that is productive, you take charge of what this is. And I'm like, this is something that I love and I would not connect it to this horrible memory. I'm going to make it mine. And by doing so, I'm like, I'm going to make my name known. And I'm going to make sure that people understand not only my story, but stories that other young girls and young boys cannot tell. And that's how I took writing. And I'm like, I'm still going to fall even more in love with you. And that's why it's so important to me. And that's why I encourage everyone, like, if this is something that you want to do, do it because this is something that I was thinking I never want to do again. But look at me, look at me now. Like, I'm like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's my story and I own it and I feel power in it. And writing gives me power. And do you think that writing your story can change something in the world? Absolutely. I, I feel that so many people don't talk about what they what they experience, the good and the bad and the ugly. And like when I was a child, talking would frighten me, like just speaking in front of people, even the thought of it was very frightening. And writing was so comforting because it's just you and that piece of paper. Or if you're older, it's you and it's that screen and it's a blank canvas and you can do whatever you want, you are in charge. And that in itself is so amazing to me. Now that is, a, by the way, I mean, I, I I should have said, I mean, that is a unbelievably you know, painful story that you shared, and um, um, and I'm sorry uh, that you that you had to you know, live through that. Um, I'm curious. Um, Sayida Copeland is is a pseudonym. Um, how? Um, do you, do, you, do you think of Sayida as someone else? Do you, or do you think of Sayida as you, as fully as your real name? I believe that, well, Sayida Copeland, I do feel like she's like another side of me. So I was adopted and my birth name was Shaquana Saida Williams. Um, my adoptive parents, they wanted to change it. So they just took my middle name and put it aside and they gave me their last name. Um, my adoption happened pretty late. I was adopted at the age of, let's say like 14, 15. Mm-hmm. So I was Shaquana for a very long time. And most people in my life, they still call me Shaquana. Um, unless they want to be funny, they'll be like, hey, Saida. Um, or, you know, people who I meet currently after the age of about 14, 15, they would know me as Saida. 
So I feel like it's it's a part of me. I feel like it's the I call it the professional part of me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just like, so you know, she's she's very calm and professional and she's she's her. And then Shaquana, you know, she's really cool and chill and but they're one of the same. And I, I struggled growing up kind of like, who am I? I have two names. Who am I? This is who I am from my birth family. Now this is who I am with my adoptive family. And then someone was just like, you're both of them. You're her all wrapped up in one. And I've just embraced embraced it all. And I, I did decide to publish under Saida Copeland. And um, I was told that Saida sounds more pretty than Shaquana. So, <laughs> oh, um, I don't know about that. Right. Like I, I've been told that. And a funny story about that is the reason for changing my name, my adoptive father told me is that Shaquana sounded pretty um, ghetto. He told me that if he was going through a job application and he saw Shaquana versus Saida, he would know that Shaquana is an African-American woman versus Saida. He was like, I wouldn't know your race at all. So he said, this is the reason why we're changing your name to give you a head start in life so that you won't be prejudged based on your name. Um, I think he had kind of a point. There are times when people wouldn't know my race um, based on my name until they meet me. And they're like, oh, and now, you know, they're asking, am I Muslim? Because it has, you know, it, it yes. comes from the Middle East. But I, I use both interchangeably. And... So that kind of dovetails with, you know, another question I have, which is um, when you think about your book coming out and the way it will be received by people who are close to you, as well as by people who you know, you know, who know you, not necessarily being very close, but definitely that you know, um, do you have any sense of, um, you know, that you're, you think that you'll surprise them by the fact that you've published a book? Do you, do you have any sort of, I'll show them kind <laughs> of sentiment um, that maybe your book or your books will, will be a rebuttal to other people, people who maybe doubted you? Um, are you, you know, are you raising your fist in anger or are you... Um, you know what? How, how do you see your emotions playing out as you imagine different people in your life seeing your book um, in a bookstore or being talked about by Oprah Oof, or yes. whatever the case may be? I receive all of that, Michael. <laughs> I receive all of that. I, I think yes, fist in the air for those who are just like writing. Okay, who writes anymore? You know, different people who, who, who doubted me, they're just like, oh, okay, I guess. Um, I would say now with the different snippets of it that's coming out and exquisite pandemic, there are people who are like, I knew that you wrote, you know, in the past and I've read Queens, but wow. And they're just like, wow. Like, and you know, I've had people now come to me and they're like, show me how you do that. And I'm like, do what? I don't know what you're doing, but that. Whatever you're doing on that page, show me. So it's like I'm becoming a teacher, but definitely for those who are just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're a writer. I, it's kind of like a look at me now, like Chris Brown mm-hmm. said in his song. It's like, look at me now. And also it's for me as well. Like, this has been my dream since 
I could dream. Look at you. Like you, you've done it. And my biological mother, she has, um, she's passed on, but she was like one of my biggest, biggest supporters. Like I can write a poem and she'll be like, oh my goodness, she'll run through the house. She'll call up her girlfriends. Girl, listen to this poem. Listen to this poem that Shaquana wrote. And she's like, yeah, she's a published author. And I'm just like, mommy, I'm, I'm 10 years old. <laughs> but she spoke into existence. And I feel like that's kind of like, look at me now, mommy. Like, mommy, I did it. I did it. By the way, I um, there's, a, there's a picture of you standing at a podium at the Center for Fiction. Oh, can yes. You, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So as I wrote for the anthology Colonize This, um, my, my, our co-editors, um, Daisy Hernandez, she definitely had asked me if I wanted to read an excerpt from my, from my story in the book. So Mahogany Brown, who is a writer as well, um, very popular writer, she had asked if I would mind coming to the Center of Fiction and reading. And I was just in awe. I was like, yes. And I wanted to meet her because I followed her on social media for so for so long. And that picture, Michael, is the picture that I feel like would be on like my desk when I'm like this famous writer and like on my walls. Um, I just felt so powerful that night. I'm just like, wow, I'm here. Like, to some people, this might be a small stage, but to me, this is like amazing. This is this is really cool. And I met some great other writers, you know, they they gave me their cards and we've been connected since. So it was a great networking night. It was really it's awesome. a very it's it, 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 it's a wonderful and powerful image. Um and it puts you, you know, right in the context of you know where you want to be, I think. Yeah. Um, do you see social media as an important vehicle for you as a, as a writer? Um, I do as far as getting your audience to um, see your writing. I definitely do. I've just been pretty cautious about social media because, you know, there's people who can take your writing and make it their own. So you have to learn about like copyrights and things of that sort. But as far as like, getting out there and getting people to know your name or, you know, just one click to lead to another click to lead to another click mm-hmm. and somebody discovers you. So it's a great way for exposure. I definitely encourage people, you know, cautiously to put their work out there. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? but, um, if you weren't, uh, if you weren't going to be a writer, mm-hmm. um, was there some other, you know, was there some other vocation that you would have dreamed of of being, you know, like an astronaut, a, a ball player. What is there? Is there something that that other than writing that would have satisfied some other very, you know, important itch? Yes, um, if I didn't want to be a writer, I was interested in becoming. Um, I know this is not the proper term, but, you know, like an undertaker, just someone who prepares um, the bodies for, you know, funerals and things of that sort. Um, I kind of have an obsession with death. (laughs) I don't know if it's because it's been really prominent in my life um, that I've become kind of, um, I wouldn't say immune to it, but it's, it's just something I'm like, okay, that's, that's just a part of life. 
So I thought it would be interesting to be a part of, you know, people transitioning over, preparing their bodies, um, you know, talking to the families. And that's something that my family is actually encouraging me to go to school for, is to um, learn the, the logistics of that. And I was told, like, you have a calm spirit, so you're very comforting if someone did lose a family member, um, to help them grieve during the grieving process and my sister, she's like, I see you earn on like just owning a million funeral homes. And, you know, she's, she's always pushing for any dream that pops up in my head. So that's something that I, I was like, if I wasn't writing, I would definitely go that route. Wow. I, I think it's safe to say not only are you the first person, but you're probably going to be the only person on my podcast to ever say that, you know, <laughs> If they couldn't be a writer, they would want to be an undertaker. Yes. That is yes. just absolutely, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, I have one more question for you, and it's something I ask everyone because, something I ask everyone because I really, um, I love hearing about this. And I, I myself have a very intimate relationship with the physical objects books. Oh, yeah. And I'm a nut about notebooks. And, you know, I, I you know, I, I write my drafts on, um, on a computer, um, I still um, take notes um, and I'm very particular about the kind of pen I have and the kind of notebook I have. Yes. And I love the books that I read. I, 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 you know, I stick my nose in them and <laughs> inhale the paper. Yes. Do you, so for instance, do you dog ear your pages? <laughs> no, I don't. I do not dog ear my pages. I'm just like, they're so, I call books my babies. So I'm just like, I don't want to bend my... Mm-hmm. but I have a million bookmarks okay from homemade to like leaves from trees <laughs> to like just different stuff that I would definitely put there the smell of books I'm obsessed with mm-hmm. I love the smell of books and I am a stickler for like calendars I think it's just the fact of being able to write it's just like dates and calendars and organization I think, sorry, my, my son. That's fine. Um, I, I think that's just like a part of being a writer. It's like anything that involves writing, I'm definitely going to get. But what kind of pins do you like? I, I like pins that aren't like crazy colors. So like purple, green and stuff like that. I'm just like, no, I like the standard blue and black pins and gel ink. I'm like crazy for it. Well, so... I like blue and black as well. And I alternate. There's times when I'm like, don't even come to me with a black pen. It's mm-hmm. like, not interested. I want it to be blue. And then there's times when I'm like, blue, that is ridiculous. Give me black. <laughs> um, I I hate gel um, because I'm always afraid that they're going to run Smudge, out. Yeah. Um, oh, no, no, no. The smudging, yeah. I mean, so usually I like nice, um, very smooth ballpoints yeah um i i have a pen that i i I got myself as a uh, as a present when i started working at the wall street journal and um i still have it and it's very oddly shaped and short it's kind of like a stubby pencil but it's a pen um (laughs) and i really love it and it's um it has a um a papermate um uh cartridge it's not a cartridge um refill oh Um, so it's it, it has a nice glide on the paper, which I really. But to me, the most important thing of all is I can only write on notebooks that have um, 
small squares, you know, the quadrille shape. Oh, uh, yes. I can't, I don't like lines and I don't like blank pages. It has, to, and it can't be big. Like, literally, <laughs> the big squares make me want to vomit. It's like, it's like they have to be small. Um, and I have terrible handwriting, so it's not like it helps in any way. It's just a, I don't know, it, it, it pleases my mind yes. <laughs> that way. That is so interesting. I, I need lines. I, I feel like my handwriting is like making hills if I don't have a line. Like, it's not straight at all. So that is, I think it's so funny, Michael, like how as writers we have like particulars I think that alone could be like a podcast. Like it's 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 just really interesting. Well, well, so the secret here is that actually all of the other questions are a setup only to talk about this. Oh. This is the only thing that matters. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, listen, it's been it's been a real pleasure and a joy having you on. Um, you have a fantastically joyful spirit that comes through in your voice and your. Uh, auditory presence thank and you. I really want to thank you for, for for joining my podcast thank you so much Michael and again thank you for even having me it's been a pleasure and I, I can't wait to hear about the next podcast that comes out and by the way um, for um, our listeners if you're interested in contributing to Saida's GoFundMe. There will be a link to the GoFundMe in the description of this podcast episode. Thank you. So have a good day, everyone, and ta-ta for now. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. I'm your host, Michael Hickens. If you like what you just heard, want to find more episodes, or want to know more about me, visit my website at michaelmissing.com.